There are no pressing announcements. Any pressing announcements would be typically in the back, and if they're not, they're not, unfortunately. We have the call to worship. Praise waited for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 534, 534. God above, we pray for our fellowship to be sweet indeed through the mercies of Christ Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit among us this morning. 
And we ask God for continued blessings by your grace alone. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. seated. We have the responsive reading of Psalm 18 inside the bulletin, at least part of Psalm 18. I think it's 52 verses long. Let us read it responsively. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. For by you I can run against a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. So here the psalmist uh, declares the goodness of God towards him, towards his people that he protects them, that he strengthens him and equips David to do his duty as a defender of the kingdom and defender of the church in particular, and establishes his way, of course, not just materially or physically, but especially spiritually through our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. We come this morning, God above, acknowledging our sins, aware of our limitations, Lord, of our ignorance in some regards, Lord, our uh, spiritual laziness, perhaps, Lord, or distractions that uh, so easily beset us, whatever other sins, God, in thought, word, and deed. And we ask, Lord, that we would continue to have a heart soft towards you and your law, and that we would repent of our sins, Lord. We continue to struggle and, and indeed hate them, Lord. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit to stand firm and to be encouraged by the gospel promise of your grace upon us through Christ Jesus, of those who repent and believe, Lord, yes, even daily we have your mercies that are new and the means of grace that you've given us, God, for the Bible, for prayer, for the preaching of the Word of God, uh, Lord God, for fellowship and discipleship. 
especially in the context of the church, God, for giving us the church of Jesus Christ. And not just ourselves, be sure, Lord, but all Christians across the world, Lord, and the blessings you've given us through these means of grace that shows your love and favor upon us, God. We ask, Lord, that these things would not be taken away from us, that we would continue to enact them and use them, God. It was very hard, certainly last year, Lord, for some of the limitations we had, but we were especially blessed in your providence, God, with the building here and other places to meet. We pray that these things would continue and that you would hold back uh, any opportunity and any difficulties that would be uh, used to, again, limit us to the means of grace, especially the public means of grace in particular, Lord. And we ask God for continued mercies in that regard for ourselves and for the churches across the nation and in the city. We pray for our work situation. We ask, Spirit of Truth and Life, that you would continue to work in us, that we would work faithfully as unto the Lord, that we would do our duty and do it well before you, God, that we would work hard, as we read in First Peter 3, God, that we would turn the other cheek as workers, Lord, um, when it is necessary, but certainly, God, that we would stand firm and to know the world is watching us to see how we work and how we relate to our bosses and to one another, Lord, and co-workers. Are we patient? Are we kind? Are we working hard, Lord? Are we just and are we fair? And all these ways, God, help us to that end. And to work well, Lord, and to pray, God, for good work and good pay for those who need it especially, Lord, and for those who have too much work, that is, so many hours that's wearing them down, God, that you would help them in that regard. For those who are in good jobs or even okay jobs, Lord, or whatever it is, short of a terrible job, that they would persevere in these work. Be thankful for the jobs that they have, even if it is a bad job in many regards, to help those who have uh, positions of authority in their company, to give them wisdom to deal with uh, pressing matters and hard decisions, especially in our economy and the strange things that are happening about uh, people asking for jobs and not getting responses from companies, companies saying they're not getting people, and we have the port problem right now as well, Lord, that these things would be resolved and resolved quickly, God, and again, for the sake of our neighbor, because we love them and love our citizens, Lord, in this nation, but especially for the sake of the Church of Jesus Christ, for our brothers and sisters who are especially impacted and are struggling in this economy. We ask God for our efforts as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, both as a Presbyterian and local churches as well, with respect to foreign missions, God, that we would be wise in the use of foreign missions, Lord, that we would uh, be balanced in our expenditures in this regard, especially if the economy gets worse, Lord, to remember that we have our priorities with our own churches and those in need. And God, we're thankful, Lord, for our long history of taking seriously the call across the world and not just in our own backyard. We pray, Lord, for the establishment of faithful churches across the world uh, in Haiti, uh, in Africa, and elsewhere, Lord, in Japan, God, and for our missionaries there, for Yuimoto and others, Lord, and the hard field that they are hoeing there, Lord, is very difficult. Many generations, God, and so little fruit. And we ask, Lord, that you would give him the means uh, to persevere and if need be, Lord, the means to retire. Our God and Savior, help them, we pray, and those also who are working in his labors uh, there in Japan. And for others, Lord, who are working in such hard fields as well as other places across this world. We pray in particular for Middle East Reform Fellowship, God. Thank you for their continued work in the Middle East there, that they would prove fruitful as well, Lord, that they would get what they need uh, and uh, be wise again with the resources they have, both manpower and with respect to finances and the like. We ask in particular, Lord, for continued coordination and unity in our foreign missions uh, board, God, and to help those 
especially in difficult countries such as China and elsewhere, Lord, where Christians and details that we have are behind closed doors, God, because it is dangerous for the Christians. Pray for their protection, God, and pray, Lord, for our contacts to be safe and, again, to be wise and use the means you've given us, Lord, to do the right thing in these regards. And, God, we ask also, Lord, for... Uh, the U.S. citizens that are Christians, that are abroad, Lord. We think, of course, of the military, but others, Lord, who work for the government, who are not in the military, who are strewn across this world, that you protect them and give them access, God, to good chaplains, good churches, and the like, Lord God above, uh, to protect and guide them and watch over them, we pray. We ask, Lord, for your continued mercies upon us this morning, Lord, that we would draw nigh unto you, uh, that we would focus upon you, God above, and that we would have sweet fellowship through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. We lift our voices up to heaven, God, and thankful for the opportunity to give these tokens, Lord, that is, these that represent, that are parts of the whole, that represent the whole of our dedication before you, God, uh, to be used for your kingdom's sake, God. Pray for your blessings upon those who have tithed, Lord, that they may be encouraged, Lord, to continue in this endeavor for this kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let us sing Psalm our, yeah, Psalm 141, 141.
in the house. Uh, Ten Commandments. Yep, here we go. Let us read it together. (coughs) And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 13, 
Romans 8.13, let us listen attentively to the word of God. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us pray. Here, God, we read our call of sanctification through the language of putting to death, Lord, our sin, and by implication, reviving righteousness, God. Help us to relearn this truth and to learn in the new, if that's our position, God, to embrace it either way, that we may continue to grow thereby in our call of sanctification. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Christianity is an uncomfortable religion, even disturbing, because it makes demands of us. I don't mean the demands of working harder to get to heaven. That's done through Christ Jesus. Lots of people do that. Lots of religions do that. But they fail miserably to match God's perfect standard. The demand I speak of is the demand of death. When the church preaches the gospel, she ought to preach the demands of the gospel, to to repent and to believe. Repentance and faith are not native to the heart of the unbeliever, as we saw prior sermons. For them to repent and believe is like asking a healthy man to drink poison. It's like demanding a healthy man to kill himself. He won't do it. But if he were told that what he thinks is poisonous death is the path to living forever, he may consider it. He may consider if he was convinced he was not actually healthy, but dying, and that the poison is actually the elixir of life, and he would probably drink it. His family would think him mad, of course. They would cry out, don't drink the poison, you'll die. You're a healthy man, what's your problem? To this dying world, the life found through repentance from sin and faith in Christ Jesus is death. They consider it death, a terrible way to live. And they flee from it. But for those of us who know that we are dying and want eternal life, this death, that is the death of the old ways of living, of thinking, the way of sin, is actually the way of life. And that is what the church should preach. Not only the sweet love of Christ, but his call to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. The call of sanctification. And we can see that summarized well in the Shorter Catechism, question 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We talked a little bit about that last week, being made or renewed in the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Those two go together. To die to flee, to reject the old ways, the old way of thinking, the old way of doing, the old way of believing, and to embrace, to flee after, and to cling unto righteousness. You have to do both. That's the call of sanctification. It's a twofold work of God, dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. Dying unto sin is the first point here. Dying unto sin. Dying to sin is the call of every Christian. It's here, of course, uh, in this text. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's not saying, you know, if you feel like it one day, you can do it. When he uses the if there. But behind this is the call, the urgent call. We should kill sin. Galatians 6.14 describes this call of dying 
the foundation of the call of dying, the foundation of the imperative, right? The command to die as being accomplished in Christ Jesus. Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should bear, I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world, of course, he means here not just the things around us. Paul is not a Gnostic. He doesn't believe the physical world is evil and we're supposed to be saved from this wood and from the earth I stand upon and the fleshly body that we have. That's not what he talks about. The word world there is a metaphor for everything around us, this way of thinking, the way of living. It's like a whole other world is alien to us now, the world of sin. And he says, I have been crucified to the world. It's by Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me. I am dead. That's what crucifixion does. kills you. Dead to this world of sin. It's an accomplished fact. It's an indicative, to use that language of grammar. This is a fact. This is what is. What is the fact is that we have died through Christ Jesus to this world and to sin. And it's objective, and we especially see that objectivity that is beyond what we feel. It is true regardless of what you feel, what other people tell you. And justification, right? Justification that we are justified in God's law courts from sin and the condemnation of the law. Christ Jesus has lived and died for us and imputed to us his righteousness, his perfection to the law, and taken our imperfections, our violations. That's justification. That is a dying to sin. That is a dying, to speak objectively, to the condemnation of the law. We're no longer guilty before the judge of the universe because of Christ Jesus. And in fact, we've been adopted a new title into the family of God. That also is objective. And that adoption has the idea, of course, of no longer being in this world, no longer being in the family of Satan. You're dead, to use the metaphor. There's different metaphors in the Bible. This is a strong metaphor. You're dead to the Saint, Satan's family and to this world. Objectively. Now, adopted children don't feel that way. They still have a lot of leftover angst and problems and concerns often from the prior family or from foster homes and whatever else they came from. That's true. But it doesn't change the fact they've got a new family. And they're no longer uh, associated with that old way of living. Whether they, Again, whether they feel like it or not. It's just simply true. Sanctification, however, the adopted child, takes a while for him to get used to mom and dad's different expectations. Different way of living, of learning. And same with us in our sanctification. So it is accomplished ultimately in Christ and then applied in our lives by the Holy Spirit and specifically in the domain of sanctification. It's also an attitude towards sin. In John twelve twenty five, we read this attitude towards sin. He that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. You notice he's not saying he who hates his life shall keep it, but he who hates his life in this world, that is the way of living that he used to have, he hates it. He doesn't want to be a sinner. He doesn't love sin. He doesn't like the desires of the world and of their neighbors. We just read some of that uh, in Psalm 100, saying it in Psalm 141, Lord, preserve me from the wicked fellowship, the wicked people and the wicked ways and the wicked intents of this world. You know you have to work with them. You have to work around people who hate Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to live and have fellowship with them in that way. That's the use of the word live there. 
course, Christ doesn't mean you commit suicide. It's a play on words. You think you have life in this world, but it's actually death. You want real life? You have to die to this world. The world sees it as death. I'm going to call it death to highlight the radical change, the radical attitude you have to have to love Jesus, to love righteousness, and by implication, of course, to hate wickedness, to hate a life that is in this world, that is of this world, the world of sin. To kill sin, you must hate sin. You cannot kill what you do not hate, even if they hate is temporary or <clears throat> not as intense or mixed with other emotion. It doesn't change the fact. It's a total rejection. By the word hate, I don't mean some kind of emotion that typically how we, I think, run across that word in American circles. Something irrational. No, I don't mean it. It's perfectly rational. Just think of terrible, terrible acts that we know that have occurred. You don't want those acts. You don't want them happening to your family. You hate those acts. That's the word for it. Sin will look at you with, of course, wide puppy dog eyes and whimper and try to draw you in, lower your guard. But God says, Christ tells us in John 12, we have to have love of God, not love of the life of this world, an attitude. That's part of sanctification. It is a command. It's an implied command, as I point out in Romans 8.13. He's not just having a fun hypothetical discussion there. Of course, if you read the rest of the chapter, you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. We have the spirit of adoption. Uh, We are being changed and are changed. The command we read in Colossians 3.5 more explicitly, in Colossians 3.5, dying unto sin, accomplished. It's an attitude, it's a command. Colossians 3.5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passions, that is, evil passions, evil desires, and covetousness, particular idolatry, which is idolatry. So the call there is real, and the call, the language is strong, put to death. You don't want it mostly dead. (laughs) You want it completely dead. You want to bury it, as we say, Put that shovel down when you're done with the dirt over the hole of sin and walk away. That's the call. That's the command of Jesus Christ through the mouth of Paul. Put to death your members which are on the earth. And we see then that what he's talking about is the use of our body in this world for sin. Not that the body is sinful, but the use of the body towards sin is sinful, of course. Sinful usage is a sin. Fornication, idolatry, evil passions and the like. These things are the things that we should kill. Of course, what does he mean by kill? What does that mean? He means stop it, flee from it, deny it, reject it in thought, in word, and in deed. Don't just make a little exception. Well, I kill it in my actions, but I still have this attraction towards it to make an allusion to pressing matters in Reformed churches. You want to kill that too, don't you? Of course you do. Kill it all. This call to put to death is broad. It's the members which are on the earth, everything that we have, our hands, our feet, our mouth, our ears, what we put on our ear gates and our eyes. And don't embrace sin through those means. The call is diverse, of course. The list we have there is fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, idolatry, coveting false gods. Our call to die to sin is a call to die to sins, plural. Particular sins that we should particularly repent of and hate and flee.
We are called to repent of particular sins, brothers and sisters. Repentance is the beginning of killing of sin. It's saying, I am wrong, I don't like this. In fact, I hate sin, and I love Jesus, and I don't want to keep doing this. Help me, Lord Jesus, day by day. battle that we have is real. Yes, Christ accomplished. It's a foundation, his work on the cross, that we have been crucified to the world. But it's working out in sanctification through our actions, the perseverance that we're called to, as we heard last week. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which I didn't mention last week. I don't think I have it here this week either. Lots of texts I can go over. This is, this is a good text that reminds us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We are called to hate sin in that text. And the basis of that hatred, the basis of the call of sanctification is that God is indeed working in you, so it's possible. It's hard. I didn't say it wasn't easy. I didn't say it was easy. It said it is hard. It's a lifelong battle to stand firm and dying unto sin. We have to recognize what we are getting into. Christ tells us what? To count the cost. You do that every day of your life. Is it worth getting up in the morning and going out with a shovel? Nah. <laughs> I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to shovel. It's going to be a blizzard. I'll wait till the blizzard's done. These are calls, judgment calls. Is it the right call? Maybe. In this case, the judgment call is knowing what it means to be a Christian and counting the cost, and the cost is a lifelong battle. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's the struggle we have. This realization of sin and hating it, the world does not have that struggle. But we have that struggle. The flesh, which is shorthand for uh, the inclinations, the thoughts, the words, the actions of our hands towards sin and into sin, lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, the spirit of righteousness. It's a struggle. They're fighting against each other. It's not always intense, but it's real. And the way you die is through dis- through discipline. Discipline, discipleship, of course, is a corporate as well as an individual action. The church is involved. That's important. Society makes a difference. It's hard to be sanctified if everywhere you look, you have to close your eyes. You have to throw the TV out throughout the internet, whatever, because it's just junk everywhere. That makes it hard. In a godly society, of course, that would help us further along in our discipleship. But the best we can do right now, unfortunately, is very localized. It's personal, it's family, it's church, maybe community. And do what you can do, even if you don't have corporate help in this regard. We are called to discipleship. We are called to a life of killing sin and living unto God. And we are given another description of sanctification, not just dying, but of a hard work and effort in 1 Timothy 4, where he talks about gymnasiums. That's the Greek word. We get the word almost right out of the Greek. Gymnasiums. <laughs> the grueling hours of weights, stretches, and diet, running, at, up at dawn, down at dusk. It's a metaphor of Sports to describe the call of dying to sin, of fighting it, of fleeing from it. It's a constant exercise. It's a constant battle. It's a constant work. But we must not and we shall not give up. Exercising 
There's another descriptive way of using that word gymnasium there. Hebrews 5.14. To grow, to constantly grow. In Hebrews there we read of being mature enough to discern between right and wrong. My daughter and your children, of course, at one time, when they were born, just ate milk and mush. She's not ready for solid food. Solid food is given to those who are mature. We are called unto maturation in the Christian life, and that means killing sin. That's what mature Christians want to do. It's self-discipline as well. Of course, we know that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. That's hard. It's deny yourself perhaps less money, less fun things, less food, whatever the case may be that you're struggling with. Discipleship, discipline, self-control, gymnasium, exercising. All these different ways of describing what it means to kill sin, to say no. This discipleship, of course, requires some organization. You can sit there and tell yourself, I'm going to do it today. But if you've not prepared yourself to get up and have plenty of sleep the night before, to have a meal in the morning, to wake up, maybe you need a little coffee to get a little kickstart. Little things like that are helpful. To get through the day that you know are going to have a special amount of temptation, for example. If you know it's coming, then you need to do what you can to avoid it. i got to go to work. Sorry, I have to go to the temptation. So what are you going to do to fight the temptation? Memorize a Bible verse. Read some, pray, of course. Figure out, if I can, avoid the person or avoid the, the matter at hand or control my lips, write down the words I have to say to my boss, perhaps. If you can't control your mouth, you have a tendency to yell at your boss. I don't know. A lot of the common sense ways are what the world uses. That's not wrong. Because they live in God's moral universe too. It works for them. They're just not going to heaven. They don't believe in Jesus. Unbelievers can do lots of wonderful things and be very well disciplined, very well structured and organized and get to the top of life and still go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. So you can learn in those regards with personal discipline and discipleship and organization and and follow through. That's true. I'm not saying don't. It may be very encouraging for you and give you some good advice that way. Some of us may have good examples for you and good advice that we've learned as well. But a reminder again, killing sin doesn't come that easily. It takes some discipline. It takes organization. It takes habit, like eating three meals a day. You can cut it down to two. By what? Habit. You work your way into it slowly. Your body adjusts to it. Same with you spiritually with respect to killing sin. Or, in fact, living unto righteousness, which is the next point. Much of what I said there, in general terms, can apply more specifically to living unto righteousness. Doing the right thing. Dying to live. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Live what? Unto righteousness is the implication. Not die in sin and wickedness, but to live under righteousness, to obey God, to say yes to his law and to his will, yes to follow Jesus, yes to using the tools he has given us to walk the path of righteousness, of holiness. These are what we call the means of grace. Living unto righteousness, dying unto sin, is described elsewhere in more gentle terms by Paul in Colossians 3.8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, 
anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, and having and have put on the new man which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him who created him. To put off is to kill. To put on is to live unto righteousness. He's using the language of putting on a jacket or a cloak. It's a milder language. That's fine. There's a place for that. You don't, you don't always have to hear, kill it, kill it, kill it. Those Christians always talk about death all the time. But it's important, nevertheless, to have that language. It's in the Bible. A language of mortification, of killing, sin. That highlights the seriousness of the battle we have. This highlights, in many ways, the encouragement we ought to have that God is with us, that we can put off, like we put off a coat, sin. And we have put off sin. Maybe you've not thought about it, but I believe you have. I've seen many of you for many years, and you've struggled. You feel like the struggle, but you also do the right thing. You come to church on Sunday. Lots and lots of people don't go to church. You'd think it would be very easy to go to church in America. There's no one stopping you. It could be down the street, a good church. That's the path of righteousness. That's one of the means of grace, going to church, putting on the new man, the new man who loves Jesus and loves his people. So that language there, just as a reminder, when you go to the Bible, Paul's saying the same thing with different language. So the means of grace broadly conceived. The means of grace that God has given us uh, broadly are all the tools, all the things involved in salvation, of course, Repentance and faith, which are gifts of God, those are means or tools or instruments God has given us to grow as Christians. We have to exercise it every day. Discipleship, I mentioned that before. Who likes to exercise? I'm not a big exercise fan, but I know I have to do it, especially as I get older. The grueling hours of weights and whatnot and watching your diet and the like, that's part of broadly conceived of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have the means of grace. Part of the means are natural means, as I pointed out. Unbelievers also have self-control and discipline to some degree. And you can learn from that. Maybe even be motivated from it. You do it for your body, don't you? I'm sure some of you, maybe at one time in your life, I even I have, have watched a video on exercising your body. <laughs> and you did it. The guy was, you didn't ask, is this a believer doing it? You're like, no, this is the right thing. I can learn something from them. And so again, some of these broadly conceived ideas of the means God has given us to grow as Christians, self-control and self-discipline is one of them, organization and follow-through, things we can learn from the world. But more narrowly, of course, or the means of grace, I suppose you could say properly speaking, that God has given us the church, the fellowship of the saints, the discipline of being in a church, of people watching you. you. You need that. That's what a community does. We're supposed to watch each other in a good sense, of course, to help, because we're there. Not because we're like, aha, let's see if we can trip and fall down and make fun of him. But to help them come alongside and lift them up. Prayer, of course, the sacraments and preaching are the public means of grace, the public formal means of grace that we exercise for our souls that draw us more into the path of godliness and holiness that reinforce what the world wishes to tear down throughout the week. Because they do. Their language, their attitude is easy to pick up sometimes at your job, in your neighborhood perhaps. And so the Lord's Day becomes therefore a rest, a place to recharge for the week through the means of grace. Of course, Bible reading, prayer at home, family devotions as we heard in Sunday school class. The Puritans are very zealous for that because they know the church can only do so much. Who does the most? Who's with you the most? Your spouse, your children, your parents. They see you day in and day out. They are to be there, especially the fathers, to reinforce godliness, to reinforce proper teaching of the Word of God. In prayer and the like. 
The call, brothers and sisters, that we read here. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, if you mortify the deeds of the body, the deeds of sin, the deeds of your thoughts and of your words, you shall live. It's a lifetime call, a lifelong call to walk away from sin and temptation. That's killing it. To walk around sin and temptation. That's killing it. To embrace righteousness and obedience. That's living in thought, word, and deed. It's a hard call, but a doable call because we have the Spirit as we read here. For as many as are led, the next verse, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And being the sons of God, we no longer have the bondage again unto fear. The bondage of trying to obey the law enough to get to heaven, to justify ourselves. But rather, we have the Spirit, and we cry out, Abba, Father. He is our Father, our Father of holiness. And we are, by His strength and power, by the Spirit within us, able to die unto the world and to live unto righteousness by His strength and grace. Let us pray. Help us, Lord, and encourage us, we pray, to continue on, God to continue on dying unto sin and to living unto righteousness, Lord, and to not give up, to be encouraged by these passages, Lord. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 356, 356.
Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.